0: This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job, but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 147 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have James Zuber. Hey, everybody. Andrew Madsen. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we're going to be talking about our coding setups. Oh, I forgot. I was also going to mention uh, the call for proposals and ticket sales. Early bird ticket sales are available for iOS Remote Conf. That's coming up in uh, middle of April, so
1: get ready for that. All right. Just heard. Heard the news. I'll be speaking at iOS Remote Comp. I'm going to talk unit testing awesome. in Swift.
2: And I'm still figuring out my proposal.
1: Awesome.
0: I'm excited. All right. Well, so coding setups. I'm kind of curious. Uh, lay, lay it on us. What do you got? A Mac. Ooh, that narrows it down.
2: What? Which model? I use a 27-inch iMac. I can't remember now. I think it's the, the late 2012, early 2013, something like that. It's not, not a Retina iMac. And I'm still really happy with it, but the Retina iMac is tempting me. Andrew's kicking it old school. What do you mean?
1: You no, know, no retina? Come on. Yeah, well. Yeah.
2: I do have a retina MacBook Pro that I use when I'm not at home, but I, I actually much prefer to use a desktop. Do you actually work from home? Yeah, I work from home all the time. You know, I when I say when I'm not working from home, it means like when I go to NS Code or night or Cocoa Heads or something like that. Right. Yeah, I, I primarily do
0: most of my work on, it's a, uh, what is it, late 2013 MacBook Pro? And yeah, it's gotten to the point now where I'm kind of needing to upgrade. <laughs> so what happens is is I, I've i been watching like the memory and the CPU and I max out my CPU when I do the podcasts.
2: That's no good. My reason for not upgrading so far is that the Retina iMacs can't drive a second Retina screen. So they're, oh. you can have a Retina iMac and you can hook up a second screen to it, but the second screen won't be Retina. Well, I think maybe they can drive a 4K screen, but I want to drive a second 5k 27-inch screen which I don't even know if anyone makes one yet but um that's sort of what I'm waiting on Gotcha that'd be cool Yeah I I've, I've thought about getting an iMac and then I'm always like
0: nah cuz most of the stuff I do I can do just fine on my uh on my MacBook Pro What
1: Jane, do you what do you use Yeah Yeah I use a MacBook Pro too and I don't remember what year it is probably 2014 uh, it still works pretty well, but yeah, if you're doing video conferencing, like we're talking over Hangouts right now, I can hear the, the fan going pretty good. So it, it, it cranks the CPU pretty hard. But no, I'm pretty happy with it. And for development, it works great. I've had huge projects I've had to compile, and it works just fine. And I'm not issuing to buy a new one. Uh, if they come up with something pretty cool, which they may in the next few months, I might upgrade but no compelling reason to
0: yeah that's the other thing is if i upgrade i'm going to upgrade everything i'm going to get more ram and i'm going to get the highest end cpu they have and all of that stuff
1: yeah whenever i upgrade i just basically go to the top of the line maybe not the absolute top cpu which mm-hmm. you know thousand dollars for an extra 0.1 megahertz which doesn't make sense but yeah gigahertz. but um decent cpu with the maxed out memory whatever the max they can do because for developers we can always use it.
0: Yeah, yeah, my thing is is like I said, you know, if I'm if I'm on one of these calls, I max out my CPU. It's funny though because otherwise I usually don't. And so I've been tempted also just to get like a, a another machine for these calls and, you know, do something a little bit less expensive because,
1: you know, I would only use Skype on it then, but I don't know. So I've seen people developing on a uh, on the Air, you know, um for doing iOS stuff, smaller things. Have anyone had any success with that? MacBook Air yeah, MacBook Air. I had an 11-inch MacBook
2: Air. Uh it was the first generation when they first came out with the 11-inch. Um so I think that was like the end of 2010. And I really loved that computer and I and I did do development on it, but it was pretty cramped and if you wanted to try to use Interface Builder, you were just sort of out of luck. I mean, it was you you can't even fit like an iPhone screen on the, you know. It, it's so small. So. <laughs> Uh, A lot of scrolling and zooming if you want to use interface builder storyboards, but I really I did like that. And I think a 13 inch air would actually be an okay machine if, if it wasn't your main machine, or if you could hook it up to a monitor a little slow, but so portable. They're, they're really nice.
0: Yeah, I know a few people that use them. I know a few people that use them for iOS development. And depending on what they're doing on it, most of the time it works fine. I mean, their builds take a little bit longer. But other than that, it seems okay.
1: Yeah, about twice a year I get some project which has massive C dependencies where I have to build a huge library. Yeah. thing. So it wouldn't work for me for what I do generally, but it'd be nice to just have something light you can pick up and put in your bag and take with you.
0: I have to say, though, that I've handled the MacBook Airs, the 11-inch and the 13-inch over the years. I've handled uh, several MacBook Pros, including, like, the 17-inch Behemoths. And I have to say that my MacBook Pro is a 13-inch. And between that and the MacBook Air, for me, hefting it and carrying it around really isn't that big a
2: difference, and so I'd rather have the extra power.
1: All right. Do either of you switch between MacBooks or developer machines frequently?
2: Well, I sort of do because I, I do all my work on my iMac normally, but I have a MacBook Pro that I occasionally use. Like like I said, I use it uh, when I'm not at home and, and need to work, which is not actually that often, but happens sometimes, And like when I'm on vacation or out of town, that kind of thing. I know a lot of people really don't like switching back and forth, but where most of my work is programming and I'm already using source control, it's not actually that big of a deal because stuff's already, you know, always already on GitHub. It's just a matter of committing and pushing my changes on one machine and then pulling them on the other.
0: Yeah, I usually switch if I'm doing Ruby. I do some of the development on my local machine and some of my development in the cloud on a box in DigitalOcean because I can and I can beef that sucker up as much as I want and it doesn't cost hardly anything so yeah my experience is the same there as far as ios projects you know i've been playing with native script lately and i've also been playing with swift lately and it doesn't seem to be make a big difference because i'm used to the workflow with git so my experience kind of mirrors what
1: andrew said okay so if you're using you know your github or whatever your repository is for keeping your your code up to date you just gotta make sure you're you're pushed on a branch or whatever what about like documents like random stuff that you have around you know specs Can you keep those updated, or do you have a method for that? Dropbox. Dropbox. Yeah, Dropbox is what I
2: use. Dropbox and, to some degree, iCloud. I actually like iCloud Drive. Dropbox sometimes annoys me for reasons that are not (laughs) Dropbox's fault, but just because I've got a lot of shared folders, so... Yeah, people, you know, somebody else uploads a bunch of files and then I'm on a tethered connection and suddenly I'm downloading a bunch of stuff that I didn't really expect. So I actually don't keep it running all the time.
0: Yeah, for me with Dropbox, what I do is I actually, you can set it up to only sync certain folders. I think they call it selective sync. And so most of my shared folders are not synced to my computer. So then it's well, like I do that, but I'm then
2: then inevitably I do actually need one of those shared folders and so I have to turn, go into select sync mm. and turn it on and, and anyway it's a it's a little bit of a pain, but that's not really because I have two machines. It's because if you're gonna use a device that's tethered ever and want to avoid huge downloads, then Dropbox has that problem.
1: Yep. Are you still on the the free plan for Dropbox or are you
2: paying for it? Unfortunately paying for it. But I guess they're giving us like a terabyte of space now. So yeah. It, it is nice.
0: Yeah, I'm paying for it as well. And yeah, I get a terabyte of space and I think it costs me like 100 bucks a year or something. I mean, it's it's some number that's ridiculously low compared to the amount of space I can put up, put stuff up in the cloud. So I just pay for it. But I also use it to transfer all of the podcast episodes and stuff so that Mandy can edit them. So, I imagine
1: that gets a little bit big. Yeah,
0: I haven't even come close to maxing it out yet. But yeah, it definitely takes up some space. So
1: No, I'm still on the free plan. And I get a video from a concert I recorded uh, with my band and the guy recorded it. Drop it on Dropbox, and now my Dropbox is full. You know, it's <laughs> for an hour show. And like, all right, got to figure out how to get this thing off there or upgrade. And if I if I was having more than one development machines, which I, I haven't had for a year or two, I'd probably pony up. Yeah. Still keep it free. But even free then, mode. I mean,
0: there are other options for documents. You can put them all into uh, Google Docs or something, and they're free up to a certain amount, too. So I'm curious, are there tools that you use? I mean, I think Xcode's kind of a given most of the time. I know there are other options, but what, what tools do you use to actually build your iOS apps, like
2: IDEs or other development tools? Xcode is certainly by far the primary thing. As far as other apps I use, I use BBEdit and TextMate. I sort of switch off between them for text editing because, some you know, BBEdit's good at some things that TextMate's not and vice versa. But I don't really code in either of those. I, I use them, you know, I'll open them and use like, a, like their sort of nice find-replace feature or something like that. But that's not where I'm writing most of my code, Xcode for that, for sure. Another really big one for me is Dash, which I think we've mm-hmm. I've at least picked it if we haven't talked about it on an episode. But Dash is a documentation viewer that's not specific to Mac and iOS development at all, but is really nice for those. And I like it better than Xcode's built-in documentation viewer. So.
0: Yeah, I've used Dash as well, and I really like it. Uh, one other tool that I use pretty frequently is Emacs. And it's just because I have so much muscle memory kind of tied up in it that when I'm writing stuff, I, I tend to just go there. Xcode does a lot for you with the uh, iOS and Mac development, so I'm, I'm definitely in there a lot when I'm building those apps. But anything else that I can do, I will do in Emacs.
1: Yeah, I mostly use Xcode for iOS development. I tried using AppCode with one project a while back, and it was one of those massive projects that I worked on that was 20 minute compile time if you rebuilt everything. Sheesh. That's cause we had 20 years of code in some of the libraries and app wouldn't even load and hopefully they fixed it now, but it just, I like, tried living on overnight and like just didn't happen, ran out of memory and just kind of hung there. And I, I never got around to working with them to, to get it resolved. They were actually very helpful. Like they were like, Hey, can you send me those kind of files? And I, I sent them a few, but I didn't get too much farther with it. I, I guess I would really like app code. JetBrains does really good work in general, uh, for, in the .NET world. You know, Visual Studio, they have an add-on for that. I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's one of the standards and really great tools for a lot of refactorings. ReSharper? ReSharper, yeah. Okay, Jeffrey, That's a really solid tool. And I'm not doing that much C Sharp, and I I haven't done any net in quite a while for ruby stuff i I use sublime text and i end up having to jump between a lot of different languages sometimes most of my work is ios but i get the occasional back-end work i need to figure out and i just i like sublime it just has reasonable defaults for javascript Perl, and ruby i tried setting up emacs for ruby development and i every time i mess with emacs i ended up not getting done because i'm messing with emacs for three hours (laughs) that's half the fun I just have the fun, but I'm like, I wanted to get something done, and Sublime just has kind of reasonable, okay defaults. Allows me to get done, doesn't give me the, the super workflow. But like you, I, I have Emacs key bindings like in, in my fingers, so I drop I drop down Emacs when I need to and um, I like to like editing pod files or card files that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But for sustained development, the you know, Sublime or Xcode.
0: Now uh, I'm kind of curious too. Do any of you use continuous integration or anything for your apps or? doing any kind
2: of uh, continuous build or deployment? I do, and I want to talk about that, but I actually I, I want to ask you guys first if you don't mind. Do either of you use anything for source control besides the command line? No, just well, command that line git.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I might to... install command line, okay. unfortunately.
2: I use the command line like 99.9% of the time, but I do have tower and source tree. Git tower and, and source tree can do both mercurial and git. I have those installed. and I don't know. Occasionally I find something where I don't really know how to do it on the command line, but if I fire up one of those, I can figure it out more easily. So i was just curious.
0: Yeah, I think Git Tower, I've used it a few times, but it's only when I get into a really, really hairy
2: merge. Otherwise, yeah, Yeah, that, so that's what I use them for is difficult merges. There's actually a GitHub client called GitHub. Mm-hmm or something like that that they've it's it's sort of it's not really just i mean it could be used this way but it's, it's it's really sort of meant to go with a normal github workflow and can do like pull requests and that sort of thing and that's actually pretty nice a pretty nice way to manage working on a, a github repo use it occasionally
0: yeah it's a cool tool and it does a lot it also does a lot to just help you like you said manage the project not just uh, manage your source code right which is what i like about it so continuous integration
2: yeah so we we do this at mixed in key and i i'm the one that is somehow ended up responsible for the whole thing and we use jenkins the main reason we're not using the xcode bots stuff that xcode has now is that we use mercurial and xcode only supports git but beyond that uh, jenkins we've been using it i think we've been using it since before xcode bots came out and i know it pretty well and know how to set it up we actually run it on a mac mini that I host here at my house, so that's kind of nice. Because I mean, it has its upsides and downsides. But machine is in my house, so I can reboot it if I need to, or you know, <laughs> hook it up to a monitor and do something if it needs to. I put new RAM in it not very
1: long ago, that kind of thing. Need the Slack message? Go over and kick the server. Okay. Yeah, it happens.
2: Well, it actually doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. It seems like it happens like right in the middle of a vacation usually. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, let me just <laughs> reach through the internet
0: and poke it. Yeah, um, I do it for Ruby. I do continuous integration. I'm working on continuous deployment. I haven't really done it for iOS, and that's mainly just out of a pure lack of desire to figure it out. I think once I get a little deeper into the iOS ecosystem, then I'll probably be a little more interested in it, but for right now I'm not. Uh, Yeah, I've been using CircleCI for my continuous integration. I used Jenkins in the past at past employers, And setting it up isn't too terribly difficult, but getting it to work with something that's not Java, in some cases, was kind of painful. And the other thing was, was that we almost always wanted something custom out of it. And so in order to go customize it, we had to go dig into a bunch of Java code and try not to do anything stupid because we didn't understand everything that was going on in it. So... I mean, that was the real issue that I ever had with Jenkins was just that it wasn't as easy for me to hack as anything else. Of course, now I'm using closed source
2: systems, so... We've had really good luck with Jenkins, actually, overall. Um, Yeah. Well, yeah,
0: once we had it set up, it was great.
2: Yeah, but it did take me a while. There was a learning curve. It took me a while to figure out how to sort of massage it into a point where it did what we need. Um, One thing that we actually use it for... I don't know. I get a little confused by the terminology, but it not only does builds when people push changes to make sure that the build's not broken and run tests and all that, but it, a- it actually uploads those builds to our deployment system, so our OS 10 builds. And then for iOS, it uploads them to TestFlight automatically. So it's also used essentially for distributing our builds. We have to go flip a switch, of course, to release a particular build to the wider world and not just for internal testing. But that streamlining our, of our release process has been really nice it helps us to release updates much more quickly and easily than and more often than we did before
1: so are you just building off master or do you have other branches you build off
2: yeah we we build off master so master is sort of our release branch and then we um we'll develop features on separate branches. Those don't get released until they're merged in. Sometimes if we're doing something really big where we want, you know, where we need builds of the feature as it goes, I'll just set up another job on Jenkins that will build that branch. And our deployment system, which we, we wrote, has support for that kind of thing. So you can have multiple channels for a given app. For our OS 10 apps, for TestFlight, it's not quite so simple because it's, it's Apple's thing.
1: Yeah, the client I've been working with, we've got a Jenkins system, and we do something similar where there's auto-builds off master. It also develops, so you know, stuff that we're checking in gets tested. We also build feature branches, and we've got a convention, so we can name the branch a certain way. And it gets tagged associated with the JIRA ticket. And the great thing about that is it also gets kind of compiled and set up with an enterprise distribution. So if I'm working on a branch, I've got a feature tag through it, uh I can tag it with the feature, name it something, and the designer I'm working with can check it out, see what I'm doing, see if you know it looks correctly, or QA can take a look at it and make sure everything's working. So that's one of the things where CI can really help. If you have other people on the team that need to review what you're doing, you know, I did this button or this background does look right. They can just do it. Otherwise, you know, you're going through the whole test flight dance you know, whatever you do to make it give a build that someone else can see. So that can save a lot of time. And I've had a couple of clients that use Jenkins, but they've always had someone full-time who is in charge of that that role in doing operations and uh, keeping Jenkins going. So a fair amount of commitment to it, but, you know, it, it's worked well and allows the developers to keep developing and let everyone else see what they're doing.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. For us, having our iOS apps go out to test flight twice a day, which is what we do, has been really good for the same reason James said because we can make you know we can make changes and then for people that need to review them I don't have to do anything I just wait and they know a, a new bill will pop up at about one o'clock and then another one about six o'clock every day and I don't have to go through the annoyance of submitting to test flight twice a day which is not horrible but it's you know
1: it's distracting so how, how is how you use test flight changed since Apple brought it in house
2: well i mean fundamentally i don't think it's changed we were using it for internal testing and also for external beta testing before apple bought it but maybe not directly related to apple buying it but since since that happened fastlane has come out and that that's really fastlane is really what made it so it was easy for me to set up a continuous integration system that would upload to to test flight which is i mean we did that whole episode on fastlane but haven't mentioned it yet today, but that's actually now, uh, you know, Fastlane is a huge part of our continuous integration setup. It's kind of hard to believe we used to not have it.
1: Yeah, cool. I found TestFlight to be very useful now that it's set up within Apple, but a huge pain to set up. You know, before setting up a TestFlight for a new client was just like, it was easy. You know, it took me a half hour to get something up there, something they could download. And I do go through a huge rigmarole just to get everything set up because the person with the Apple ID has to set it up. They invite you, you have to be an iTunes Connect user, you can't have the same email address between two ones, so I have to like create an hey. email, email alias. They fixed that. You they did? did. Okay. Yeah. So just not very long ago. Okay. That's so quite nice. Yeah. Last summer when I had to do all this, I'm like, oh, I have to create a new email alias. Okay. Add me again to iTunes Connect and make give me this access. <laughs> and, but I'm glad that's fixed.
2: Yeah. So for me, I don't where I'm not doing contract work for multiple clients. It's not a big deal to, to set up a new app, but it is quite a pain when you want to get added to a new team especially if the person that's sort of helping you doesn't really know how to do it because the UI for iTunes Connect and the developer portal is not exactly easy to figure out if you've never seen it before.
1: Yeah, they're a CEO and something non-technical. They're running the company. They want an app, but yeah, they don't really know what's going on. So it's like, okay, I'm walking through these steps. Add me here. Do this. Click these things. That's how it goes.
0: Yep. So uh, how about your uh, desk setup? I'm kind of curious. If you're watching the video, we are recording this on Google Hangouts you can probably see that I'm standing up. I'm actually kind of sitting down. I'm uh, I'm leaning on this uh, Mogo seat, and it's it's specifically made for standing desks. If I've been up and about a lot during the day, then I'll pull it out and sit on it, and it's, it's kind of nice. But I feel like it gets me upright, and that's a good thing. It's just the uh, Lifehacker Ikea standing desk that I'm standing at. But most of the time when I'm coding, I'm actually sitting down. And I actually have uh, a lot of people are amused by this, but it's basically a cubicle in my home office. Yeah, so I just sit here. I've got a ton of desk space. It's a total disaster right now, so I'm not going to turn the camera. But um, And then I have a Herman Miller Aeron chair that is very nice to sit in. I actually bought a footrest off Amazon for like 20 bucks. Slid it under my desk, so I put my feet up when I code. And then I've got two monitor arms where I sit. I've got a dual monitor arm thingy where I stand. The mixer board is right below my laptop, and I've got another, a second monitor on that and then a tray for the laptop, so that's my two screens over here. And then I have a docking station, a, le- a Thunderbolt le- docking station for both places where I sit, so I just move the laptop. I just unplug it, move it over, and plug it
1: back in. That's cool. Yeah, I've got a I've got a standing desk, too, and I've had it for about a year. I bought the Veridesk, which allows you to go up and down within a few— it really takes me five ten seconds if I want to go up and down— is I that
0: is that one of the ones that you stick on a regular desk and then lift it
1: up and down? Yeah, it just sits on it. It's pretty huge. I bought the huge, I bought the biggest one, which is really bigger than I needed. I mean, I've got a Thunderbolt display, which is pretty wide, and I used to have Thunderbolt and my MacBook set up side by side, and I wanted to do that, and I thought it would be wide enough. But I bought the forty-eight inch, which is which is massive, and I really can't fit them both side. I can't fit the Thunderbolt in the middle and my MacBook off the side a little bit, so that doesn't quite fit. So. I didn't need one this big, but it's massive. I got a lamp on sitting on my desk just to keep light going in. Uh, but it's cool. I can go up. I can go down in 10 seconds. So I'd be working, coding long. Oh, my knees are getting a little sore. Go back down, and I'm sitting. One drawback is it raises your desk about four inches. And with the Thunderbolt monitor, you can't lower it. So I had to buy a new chair. I had a chair I was reasonably happy with, and I had to buy a taller one. And I had my heart set on a Herman Miller chair, great chairs. And no standard chairs go high enough for me to work at this desk as it is. So I had to buy a drafting chair. And you can buy the Herman Miller drafting chair, but it's like $1,200. I'm like, well, let's try this out. So I tried a cheaper one, which it's an okay chair, not the greatest thing. But I'm happy, you know, being able to stand up and sit down as I need to. So I'm pretty happy with my Bear desk. but you don't need 48 inches. <laughs> nice. I've been looking at those motorized ones, you know, that are sit-stand desks, but I
0: just
2: haven't sprung for it yet. What about you, Andrew? My desk setup's a lot more boring than you guys. I just have a uh, a desk from Ikea. I can't really remember. You know, it's, you just buy the, the desktop and the legs, and I've had it for forever, and uh, my chair is also from Ikea. It's, it's sort of, I, I don't know, it's one that comes up on lists of good, decent chairs that are not super expensive. Um, I'd really like to get a standing desk set up, but just haven't yet. I do use two monitors. I have my 27-inch iMac, and then I have another 27-inch screen by Dell that I put next to it so i need a fairly wide desk and this one is but one of these days i'll get a standing desk
0: yeah my issue was that i kept trying to talk my wife into the thousand dollar sit stand desk with the motor in it and she kept saying
2: "Uh, do you need it and i'm
0: you know strictly speaking no but i could talk her into the 30 bucks i spent for the parts for the lifehacker ikea desk so yeah i have to move my laptop back and forth but so that, that's kind of, and now that I use it all the time, I think I could tucker her into it if we were in a position where we had the extra money to spend on it. Is there anything else to your setup? Anything else that you have that, you, you know, you can't live without with your coding or your, you know, just your habits as you work throughout the day?
2: Yeah, so I uh, I do some hardware engineering, partly just for fun, but I also uh, have a project that I'm working on now that's not just for fun where I'm doing doing hardware. So to my left, I have a, a full workbench set up with a stereo microscope and you know soldering iron and parts drawers and all that and having that close to my computer is nice because the stuff I work on typically has software that goes along with it and then of course another big one is is music during the during the time I'm working I like to listen to music so I have decent speakers and I've got my tape decks and That kind of stuff right next to me. Nice.
0: Yeah, for my music, I just use the, I have a little can Bluetooth speaker, and I'm usually listening to podcasts, so the fidelity isn't as important because it's just voice. But when I am listening to music, I usually just pop in some headphones. So I've got the Sony headphones that I'm wearing right now as we do the podcasts that I'll use a lot. I also have some Bose noise-canceling headphones that I use at the coffee shop or cafe, and then the rest of the time I'm just using the regular Apple EarPods. I think Jane is also a music junkie, though. What, what is your music setup,
1: Jane? So for coding, it's quiet most of the time. Um, if I had to really think on a problem, which is a lot of my developments, then I, I usually don't have it on. If I do have it on, you get some brain-dead tasks where you're copying and pasting and stuff like that. I've just got Spotify going, and I got it going through my Thunderbolt display, which isn't the greatest quality, but decent for you know, computer speakers. So I do that, and every once in a while I, I listen to music, and... And work okay, then I they go go upstairs to like my regular stereo setup, put uh, on a CD or or LP or something, and like it sounds so much better upstairs. Like you kinda, listening to the, the stream music kind of removes your ability to enjoy music after a while, but gradually. But there's something to be said, I think, for being used to
2: listening to the kind of crappy sounding music, and then you go listen to it on your real stereo, and it just sounds so
1: much better that it blows you away
2: because you're not used to it.
1: True, I get that. Every, yeah, quite often. If it's been a few days before I've listened to anything upstairs, you know, from a CD, I'm like, "Wow, this sounds really good." And you don't notice how bad it sounds when, th- when you're listening to it, but you can tell the difference for sure. Yep. Well, coding music. So, Chuck, you listen to podcasts. What type of tunes
2: do you listen to, Andrew? I can't listen to podcasts while I'm working because I can't. I'll, I just won't be able to. I just, you know, I'm listening to it, but it's going in one ear and out the other. So I only listen to podcasts like when I'm driving. But um, I listen to all kinds of music. By that I mean I listen to all kinds of music that I like while I'm coding. There's not really a particular kind that's good for me or bad for me. I listen to a lot of classic rock, I listen to a lot of new music, I like sort of modern classical and handful of other things. It just depends on what what, you know, what mood I'm in. I know some people though that, you know, they only listen to instrumental music when they're working or something like that, but that's not how I do things.
0: Yeah, if I need to get into the zone and I'm listening to music, then it has to be uh, instrumental, it, it can't have lyrics to it because I just get totally distracted. Yeah, so anyway, I have a collection of classical music that I bought off of iTunes. I'll see if I can find it and put a link to it in the show notes. And then uh, I listen to some electronic music. It's really funny, though, because I'm, I'm kind of picky about that. Some of it's really good and some of it isn't there's also a program out there called focus at will and uh, they play music and it's oriental or Eastern style music and all kinds of stuff but it's got a very specific cadence and types of sounds that that can kind of help you get in the zone and sometimes it really works for me well and sometimes I'm just You know, I put it in and I'm just like, okay, this is putting me to sleep. So, you know, it just depends on what I'm after. But a lot of times what I'm doing is I'm sitting down and I'm, you know, doing some busy work to manage something for the podcasts or, you know, do social media. Or, you know, I'm just browsing through email and kind of cleaning out all the stuff that I can answer in two seconds or less without thinking too much. And so when I'm doing that, I'll usually listen to a podcast because I have enough free cycles in my brain to kind of process through whatever it is. So it just depends on what I'm doing more than anything else. Uh, Yeah, I'll put a link to the classical music. And then somebody got me turned on to Dead Mouse, which is kind of, you know, sometimes I'm in the mood for that. Sometimes I'm not, just depending on the the music and the rhythm and things like that. But there are a few others I can't think of off the top of my head. But I've got a, a playlist in iTunes that I just turn on. And then if I really need to get pumped up, then I have a couple of songs that I do use for that too usually it's stuff off of a rocky soundtrack
1: believe it or not so anyway, i was about to say that i bet chuck's going got the rocky theme going Yep, it is a good one no i'm I'm pretty particular about the music i listen to when i'm coding i need to focus it's usually instrumental and that can that's largely classical or jazz I like box cello suites are pretty cool um they just kind of keep going and, uh, i like Mahler uh, his symphonies, which most people probably wouldn't like that much, but I've heard him enough. They can just kind of go on in the background. Bill Frizzell, he's a kind of jazz guitarist. Jazz doesn't really describe what he sounds like. It's real spacious, ambient music. It fits in the background really well, so I listen to quite a bit of Bill Frizzell. But, you know, if it's a, I'm in a loud place, I turn on the white noise. when on the headphones, I just play some white noise, and there's some playlists off Spotify, which I do okay, just to drown out extra sounds you're... You know, uh, for those who don't know what white noise is, it's just random sound, and it sounds like television. Well, televisions do not do this anymore, but if you had a television hooked to no signal, it just sounds like static. And it, it, it's noise, so it masks out other noise, but your brain doesn't focus on it. So it just kind of lets you, it's there, it runs out other sounds, but your brain's not paying attention to it. Like if I listen to a, songs with lyrics, I listen to the lyrics, and I'm thinking about the lyrics instead of my code. So sometimes they'll just drop down to white noise especially if I'm at a co-working spot that's a little bit loud. White noise works pretty well.
0: Yeah, I have a white noise app on my phone. I think it's called White Noise. I've used that at hotels. I think the worst that I ever had it at a hotel, I went to RubyConf in Atlanta, and I booked myself into the Hyatt that was around the corner from the conference venue. And the center of the hotel was just a big open-to-the-air space all the way down to the lobby. So even though I was on the 11th floor, I was getting all the echoes out of the, the main place and so yeah i hooked my phone up to my little can speaker and then turned on some white noise and they have like rain and heavy rain and they have ocean waves and things like that but then they also have just generic white noise that as james said is kind of the random you know soft noise that just drowns everything else out so one other thing i'm going to briefly mention with my gear is uh i have a little tower that i take when i go co-working especially if i'm going co-working it has uh eight plugs on it and four usb plugs and anyway it just sits on the table and has a reasonably long cord that you can plug into the wall wherever you're at and so that way you know we can have eight or so people sitting around the table um all plugged into the same power source and share power and because it has the four usb plugs then people can plug their phones in and stuff too the other one that I have, and this is something that Alondo picked a while back. I bought the Plug Bug because I was going to Amsterdam. And the one thing that's really nice about it is that it hooks onto your power supply, you know, like the cord or the little short, I don't know what to call it, but anyway, it has the little attachment for the plug. This goes on like that and uh, it adapts for different uh, international power uh, things if you get the Plug Bug World. But it also has a USB port on it so you can p- charge your phone and your laptop at the same time off of the same plug which is nice
1: yeah i've got a colleague who does sales and travels a lot and he's got devices like that he takes with him at airports he calls them his friend makers mm-hmm. yep you, you can always like if you can help someone out like all the plugs might be full but hey i plug in here you can plug in and the, everyone can plug in and, and you're all good to go yeah they're really
2: handy that way should we get to picks then let's do it all right andrew what are your picks i've just got one pick today i had another one but i couldn't I, I know I was thinking about it, but I couldn't remember it. So I'm going to pick open radar, which I, I've probably picked before. But and going along with open radar, I'm also just going to pick filing radars with Apple. I think filing, so for those that don't know, filing a radar with Apple means filing a bug report with Apple. And you can use this to file, to report bugs in, you know, in the SDKs or in Xcode or even just in apps that are, you know, that are Apple apps that come with the operating system. You can use it to file bugs that are operating system bugs. And... It has a little bit of a bad reputation. Partly it deserves that because it's kind of a black hole and it could be designed better for, for external users. But at the same time, this is sort of our only way to tell Apple about problems that need to be fixed. And, you know, it's really true that Apple can't fix things that they don't know about. And there are good engineers inside of Apple that, that do care and want to fix things that we report. So. File Radars, and then, and then Open Radar is a site where you can post your radar, your bug report, so that other people can see it. Open Radar is public, and it's basically like a mirror of bugs that are filed with Apple, but uh, it does require you to file a bug there yourself. So I, I like it, though. I sometimes just go visit and, and kind of look through the bugs that people have filed today because there's a list of recent bugs on the top page. It also makes it easy if you're hitting into a bug that somebody else has also uh, had. You can file your report as a duplicate of theirs. That helps Apple sort of organize things. So that's my
1: pick. All right, Jane, what are your picks? All right, I'm going to do one pick. I'm going to do a, a TV show pick. And I'm going to go to the Wayback Machine for this one. Um, Twin Peaks made the news in the past year or so. They're doing a sequel series, another another season, I guess, you call it. Um, but I'd never seen the actual the original episodes. I remember it was on. And I maybe watched one episode, and people talked about it. It was a thing, and I just kind of tuned it out for you know 25 years or whatever i went through and, and watched it it's on netflix and it's, it's really great the first season is amazing you know if you're familiar with david lynch's work it's it's weird and occasionally disturbing and that's just how he goes so if, if you're okay with that um it's worth checking out but uh, great mystery uh season one's pretty you know concise season two basically sprawls there's 22 episodes which when i first looked at it I'm like that's insane i'm not gonna watch it I'm going to get bored halfway through, but I'll see how it goes. But I, I made it through all 22 episodes, and I thought it was great. It just kind of sprawls out like a like a soap opera. I was trying to explain. I was watching it to my wife, community, like, what's happening here? Who's that person? Like, well, he's... And by the time I explained it, I realized I was actually watching a soap opera because the plot had twisted so many times. <laughs> had, I, had no, I, can't, I had no way to explain who this person was without going on for like a half hour. But it's really good. So I, I recommend Twin Peaks, and they're redoing. I don't know if they're shooting yet, but they're going to do a you know season three. Um, 25 years later new tv show so i'm pretty excited for that but yeah check out twin peaks plus one on that i love twin peaks
2: the second season is a little odd because i think they thought they were going to get canceled halfway through and then they ended up not getting canceled and or yeah something like that anyway so the story kind of went off in a weird direction but i'm excited for the new one and that's definitely worth watching if you've never watched it i also just want to say i really love um david duchovny's role in twin peaks this is (laughs)
1: pre-x-files (laughs) <laughs> yeah, definitely. A, that's definitely a plot twist right there. But we'll leave it as a surprise. But I, after 25 years, though, spoilers don't really count, do they? No, but <laughs> if you're trying to get people to watch the show, that's right. That's true. And Heather Graham, a very young Heather Graham, shows up at the end.
0: All right, I've got two things. One pick is sometimes I miss events, like I've been watching the presidential debates, and you know, and I want to, uh, you know, I want to stay up on what's going on. And so uh, I've been going to torrents.eu. That's T O R R E N T Z.eu. You can find other stuff that is questionably legal, legal but uh, anyway, I, I generally just use it for things that I don't want to miss that are kind of timely like that. So, uh, Anyway, I've been using it to get those and watch those. And, yeah, you can find all kinds of great stuff on there. The other thing that I want to just let people know about, I don't know if we've mentioned it on the show. And by the time the show comes out, it might actually be too late for people to make plans. But we are going to be in San Francisco on March, what is it, 29th, 30th, 31st? 30th and 31st
2: and 1st. 30th, 31st, and some of us will
0: be there the first. Yeah, I won't be there the first, but these two guys will. And you know we're going to be at Build Conference, we're going to be participating in their podcast area, and we're going to be talking to a lot of people at the conference, uh, and hopefully getting some uh, Microsoft input on some of the stuff going on in the mobile world. So if there are particular ideas that you have, of course, I think this comes out on the 30th, if I remember right, so let us know. Also, I've been working, I've been talking to a few people, particularly Pete Hodgson, about uh, pulling together a meetup for people who like this show and the JavaScript Jabber show who are also going. So if you want to meet up with us, uh, we'll be meeting up somewhere near the conference on the 30th is, is what I'm looking at, or the 31st, I don't remember. Anyway, it'll be one of those nights... I'm going to be sending emails around if you get updates on this show or any of the other shows that we do on devchat.tv. So, yeah, keep an ear out for that. If you're not in San Francisco, I'm just going to throw a few other dates and cities out because I am traveling a bit this year. So I'm actually flying from San Francisco to Las Vegas, and I'll be in Las Vegas from the 1st until the 6th. So if you're in Las Vegas, I think I'm pulling something together on the 3rd is what I think I figured out. So if you're in Las Vegas, again, I'm going to be sending emails out letting you know where to go and, and where to meet up. And then in in May, the Adventures in Angular and JavaScript Jabber crews are getting getting together for NGConf and we're going to be doing sessions at NGConf. And that's in Salt Lake City. So if you want to come hang out in Salt Lake City with us and we'll, you know, we'll see if we can get Andrew to come too. We're going to be doing that somewhere around the, the conference venue, which is the Grand America Hotel downtown. And yeah, so that should be fun. And then In July, on July 9th, I'm going to be doing another get-together in Chicago because I'll be there for Podcast Movement, and so we're working all that out. And then it looks semi-likely that I'll be in Nashville sometime in November. So if you're looking to meet me, Chicago or Nashville, yeah, just uh, keep an eye out or an ear out. And if you you are fans of those other shows, then definitely come out and see us. Uh, And like I said, um, if you're on the mailing list, you'll get notified. You can get on the mailing list by going to ifreakshow.com. And if you haven't been on the page before, it'll slide down with the little thing that says, get the top 10 episodes of the iFreak show in your inbox. And if you enter your email address in there, then you'll get these notifications too. I'm trying to get together a landing page for that. I just, I've been busy and haven't gotten to it. So... Anyway, long-winded, come meet us, come meet me. The thing that's really nice about these meetups, though, is that it's one thing to speak into a mic and know that it's getting recorded and going out to people, and it's another thing when we get a chance to talk, say, on Skype or something with a listener, and I've, I've done that fairly frequently. In fact, you can do that by going to ifreakshow.com slash 15minutes. Uh, however, it's, it's an entirely different thing. And uh, for me, it's much more fulfilling because I really get to know who people are and feel like we connect in sort of a person-to-person manner when we can do it in person. So please come out, especially if you're in San Francisco, since uh James and Andrew and I will all be in the same place. And I know Pete will be there because he said he was going to come.
1: So definitely uh please come. And with Pete there, we're having a local pick-up spot, so it's all good.
0: Yep. Yeah, he's already given me a recommendation or two. So I'm just... Ironing out the details, and I'll make a reservation. But I am also collecting RSVPs for that. So if you haven't gotten the email about it, because I did send one already, uh, just shoot me an email, chuck at devchat.tv, or tweet at me at CMAXW and say you're going to come, and I'll add you to the headcount. Even if you think you might be able to come, if it's a better than 50% chance you'll show up, then let us know, and we'll we'll count you in. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it'll be fun. And if you're going to be at Build Conference, come find us. And I guess uh, we'll leave it there. We'll wrap up and we'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more.